I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. In a February 2002 news briefing, in response to a question about the supply of weapons by Iraq to terrorist groups, then Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld famously said, There are known knows, things we know we know. There are known unknowns, some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns, the ones we don't know we don't know. Uncertainty, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns are clearly important in military conflicts. Uncertainty is also important in economics. It affects people's decisions on how much and what to buy, companies' decisions on when and what to invest, and whether or not to hire, and the government's choices about spending and tax policies. But how can we measure uncertainty? And with these measures, can we show an effect of uncertainty on economic outcomes? Kristalina Georgieva, the managing director of the International Monetary Fund, said in January 2020, if I had to identify a theme at the outset of the new decade, it would be increasing uncertainty. One of the economists who has worked on measuring uncertainty and seeing its economic effects is my guest today, Professor Nicholas Bloom of Stanford University. Nick, welcome back to Econofact Chats. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to be back. Well, it's wonderful to have you back, Nick. Nick, what led you to try to measure uncertainty and determine its economic effects? Uh, it's a kind of a bit of a random path. So when I was doing, I did a master's in Oxford University in 94 to 96, a very long time ago. I remember when I did that, there was a book by Dixit and Pindyke called Investment Under Uncertainty, which oddly enough is quite technical, but it was kind of in airports as well. And I got interested in reading that but it was mainly theoretical. There's no data. And it just happened that my girlfriend at the time and now wife was working at the Bank of England and was looking at financial options markets. And that had data. They had all this data on like implied volatility, uncertainty. And so I was like, wow, I put you know, one on one together and thought this would be an interesting thing to do my PhD on. So is that book by Dixit and Pindyke, the only airport book ever with Ito's Lemma in it? <laughs> yes. I mean, it's amazing. I've actually spoken to publishers about potentially, you know, doing a book on uncertainty, work from home management, some stuff I work on. And uh, I, you know, said I'd love to be as successful as that book. And they're like, you know, A, forget it. It's just like, that's a superstar book. And B, it's full of maths. So even we don't know what makes it so uh, popular in airport bookstores. Yeah, I think a lot of people, once they settled into their seats, were a little surprised to see stochastic calculus. <laughs> it could have helped them sleep on a long flight, I suppose. So, before going into the results about the empirical analysis of uncertainty, let's frame our discussion by talking about what economic theory has to say about uncertainty. First, what have economists said about the nature of uncertainty? Well, your initial quote was perfect for setting this up. So Frank Knight, back in 1921, said, look, there are two types of things you can think about. There is known uncertainty. So, which he called risk, which to be honest, nowadays is just basically called uncertainty, which is when you know the distribution of something. So, good example would be flipping a coin. If it's fair, we know it's 50% heads, 50% tails. 
Then he called something back then uncertainty, which is now generally called Knightian uncertainty, is when you don't know the distribution of something. So an example might be if I, you know, if I asked you to say, how many coins have ever been minted in the history of human civilization? And you're going to be like, you know, how on earth do I know? That's like everything from Romans to, you know, Zimbabwe, you know, it's just impossible to figure it out. And that's now called Knightian uncertainty. And that is kind of, uh, I don't know there's unknown unknowns or known unknowns, but it's something that we can't put a probability distribution on. It's also been called ambiguity as well sometimes in the literature. I think that term ambiguity is good. So why does ambiguity or uncertainty matter for economic outcomes? It matters when you've got to decide about something in the future and it's costly if you make a mistake. So probably the best examples are firstly firms thinking about investing or hiring people. So if you're a company... You want to go out and set up a new factory or you'll say, you know, Walmart and open a new store. If you make a mistake and put it in the wrong place, it's very costly to unwind now. Think about hiring new employees. So when you're forward looking uh, if you, for firms hiring and investing, for all of us, for consumers, the classic decisions might be buying durables. So like buying a house or a car or a washing machine. Um, these, again, are decisions. If you buy the wrong car, it's expensive to unwind it. And so uncertainty tends to make us cautious, less like to act. And, you know, uh, you know, if you're doing something like buying a cup of coffee from Starbucks, it's, you know, it's only whatever. It used to be $3. It's probably now five. It's, you know, something that's small fry. It doesn't really matter. But for major decisions, investing, hiring, buying durables, it turns out to be potentially quite damaging to those decisions. Hopefully when you buy the coffee from Starbucks, you're not that uncertain about the quality, but you might be more uncertain about people you hire, whether they actually work out or not, right? Yes, that is another factor. Um, so if I'm a firm, th think if I'm Walmart, I'm deciding whether to open a new superstore. That costs, let's say, 10 billion. I figure out if I make a mistake and scrap it, I'm only going to get 2 billion back. I'll get the land back, but you know, all the buildings is pretty useless. There's enormous uncertainty for them about you know, general retail trends. Is it online, offline? Who's going to live there? As you say, how good you know the construction of the store will be, the workers. So for Walmart, they're going to say, "Look, I, you know, here's the here's my mean estimated profit, but I need a buffer. I need what's often been called real options. I need you know, I need to get not only above that, I need to price in some uncertainty." So, given this framing, Nick, we'd like to know whether the effects of uncertainty on economic outcomes are big or small. But to do this, we need to measure uncertainty. How have you done that in your research? So I would say, for me and others. There are probably three broad groups of measures. So one is the one I first started working with, and it's maybe the oldest, which is from financial markets. So for example, if you look at the S&P 500, if it's bouncing up and down every day, you tend to think things are uncertain. I mean, that's a, in some ways, it's kind of a measure of the value of at least publicly traded firms. And if it's going up and down, there's a lot of uncertainty. A slightly more sophisticated version of that is what's called implied volatility. So if you take options prices and invert them out through black shoals, you can get a market estimate. So that's group one is financial markets, either stock market, vol or implied vol. Group two is survey data. And survey data, you know, you go out and survey tens of thousands of firms or individuals. It's harder. It, you know, you, there's these surveys where they ask you, how uncertain are you right now? You know, low, medium, high, very high. It, it's less clear how quantitative that is. I've been doing some stuff in the UK and the US where we've asked firms to forecast sales in different bins and put subjective probabilities about that around that. That's another good option. The problem with survey data is it's expensive to collect and it's hard to go back in time. The third group 
is comes from text, of which probably the most well-known would be newspapers. So what you can do is go back and just search or scrape basically newspapers to find the frequency of the word uncertainty. You may think that this is, you know, that's a bit simplistic. So maybe you'd say, let's say uncertainty within 10 words of the word uncertain uh, business or economics or growth or some policy word. But, you know, people have been searching, scraping Twitter, for example, but is this text to data methods? So these are all measures for the US or the UK, but you've also developed measures for a wider range of countries as well, right? Yeah, yeah, so the newspaper stuff can be used across countries, but you can't compare levels. So you can go and scrape French newspapers and German ones and British ones, but we can't really compare levels because the newspaper structure is different. In a project I've been doing, in fact, with the IMF, so your quote earlier was, was perfect, we take The Economist and these have these monthly country reports. So, you know, standing in the Economist Intelligence Unit puts out a report for about 140 countries once a month, and it's about 30 pages long, and they have a very standardized structure. And we search for the frequency of uncertainty in those reports. Turns out that's actually, that seems to do a pretty good job. So in the US, for example, if you correlate that with stock vol or surveys, it lines up. What you tend to see is in developing countries, uncertainty is highest. So if you go to, let's say, the reports for Africa, uh, Central America, some of the poorer parts of Asia, it talks a lot about uncertainty. When you read it, it's talking about policy, domestic policy, political situation, wars, sometimes the effect of overseas policy. Middle-income countries is medium and developed countries. You know, the US and Europe actually has the lowest count. So in some ways, it's ironic to me that much of the literature on the uh, measurement and effect of uncertainty is focused on the US, which actually is relatively stable on a global context. So when we have multiple indicators of a similar thing, we like to check to make sure that there's a rough agreement amongst them. Is that the case with these different measures of uncertainty, or do they move separately from one another and give you different pictures of what's going on? Yes. Rough is the, is a good term there. So I would say the correlation is about 0.5, and depends what you think that's a you know, glass half fill or a glass half empty. <laughs> yeah. Got, I mean, this is time says they definitely move together. So I was to show you a graph of, you know, newspaper mentioned stock market volatility and Firm surveys, they move together, but the magnitudes are very different. So just as an example, in fact, I think newspapers spiked by four or 500% with COVID. Stock market vol went up by about two, 300% and firm subjective uncertainty doubled. So you can see there's big differences. Another era there is interesting differences with Donald Trump. So after the election of Donald Trump, there wasn't particularly higher measures in, new, in um, financial markets or in surveys, but in newspapers, it surged. So Trump was certainly all over the news. Newspapers talked a lot about uncertainty. We didn't see it so much picked up in other areas. So going back to what we talked about earlier, Nick, do you think these indicators as reflecting ambiguity or uncertainty? Going back to the Knightian idea of ambiguity and kind of the what you call the distribution, the coin flip idea of uncertainty. I think they mostly predict uncertainty, apart from huge spikes where they predict like ambiguity or 19 uncertainty. So most of the time, if you look at what's going up and down, it's, you know, some government decided to make a policy announcement or the price of oil or OPEC has done this, or there's, you know, some, you know, companies announced new results. The big spikes on the other hand, so I think of 9-11, global financial crisis, when it just broke out, COVID, the beginning of the pandemic, there it does feel like there's elements of 19 uncertainty or ambiguity. Because, I mean, for example, take 9-11 for the early days of 9-11, the first two, three days, they, you know, no one actually stepped forward to say who's responsible. Bin Laden 
didn't initially have a responsibility for it. And so there's and those the anthrax attacks. No one knew what was going on with the pandemic. It's very hard early on even to get ideas of you know whether it was spread by touch or by the air, the mortality rates, etc. So I think these big spikes are big surges of 19 uncertainty, but the smaller fluctuations are pro- more measures of you know measurable uncertainty. And that would make sense, I suppose, because, you know, these are kind of once in a generation or even once in a lifetime events. And so you don't have other things to compare it with. So it would make sense that if you have COVID or 9-11 or the Lehman crisis, people don't have a frame of reference for it. So that seems consistent with this definition that you've made between uncertainty and ambiguity. Yes, I mean, definitely. It matches very much the business cycle. So I think it was Bob Hall. Um, one of my colleagues at Stanford talked about what's called the Anna Karenina theory of recession. So if you look at growth periods, they're all kind of similar. But like the book where it says, you know, happy families are all alike, unhappy families are all different. Recessions in the US and you know, globally seem to be different. So if you look at US recessions, there's the pandemic, there was 9-11, there's the financial crisis, there's OPEC. So downturns seem to be driven by unexpected events. And those events also, as you say, are different. We've never seen anything like them before or rarely. And so they generate big surges of uncertainty. So I think this kind of goes together in a picture that in normal growth periods, uncertainty is lower. Things are predictable. It's kind of uncertainty. In recession, certainly at the beginning, there's some huge event often that causes it. Uncertainty picks up and it's much more ambiguity or nineteen uncertainty in that initial early phase. So... You were saying that you have this information across different countries. And do you see in this information any patterns across countries that speak to whether there are higher or lower levels of uncertainty? Can we say in countries that have this characteristic or that characteristic, uncertainty or ambiguity seems to be higher? One thing that's interesting, I mean, we're kind of pulling it out, is if you look at the level of democracy, it looks like democracies tend to have lower on average. As you get less and less democratic, more autocratic, it tends to go up. But you know, there's a certain inc- there's a certain reduction until you get to very autocratic, it goes up again. I think what's going on is democracies are kind of predictable chaos. We know, you know, particularly anyone that's been to uh, Italy, but you know, the UK has been through a fair amount of turmoil. Governments come and go, this churn, but you kind of know what you're getting. As you go to more autocratic regimes, you have things that seem to be stable for a while, and then there's a revolution or a coup, or you know the leader dies, and you get absolute, you know, unpredicted chaos. So one thing is the political structure. Democracies, in that sense, are slightly more predictable. They avoid the left tail outcomes. Uh, the level of development is another thing we talked about earlier. It seems to be in developed, well-functioning countries. You know, Northern Europe, the U.S., Japan, Australia, New Zealand, etc. Uncertainty is low on average. The types of events that are extreme outliers tend to be rarer. I think one of the drivers there is policy. However much we, you know, unhappy, I certainly wouldn't say that US or European policy has been perfect by any means, but it's more predictable and you know, more reasonable than some of the policies, particularly in autocratic developing countries, whereby you see terrible things that are happening. Or in fact, if you look at Europe and the US, if you go back in history, if you look at how these countries were run 500 or 1,000 years ago, I imagine if we could have measured it, uncertainty would be far higher back then where some you know despotic leader would make some terrible decision. So governments, government and governance is hugely important for this. So one of the advantages of all the measures of uncertainty that you're talking about is that they're pretty contemporaneous. So what about now? Are we living in particularly uncertain times? Yeah, again, I thought the quote from the RMF, which was earlier, was great. We are kind of like a seven out of 10. 
So to put it in perspective, the 90s, looking back, and it turned out to be a period of relatively low uncertainty and calm. I mean, it seems, you know, anyone, I, li- I was born in 73, so you know, I can remember that as an adult, but in most of our data, it looks kind of low. It's been picking up, rising. 2008 was a big spike up, dropped down. Obviously, 2020 was an enormous surge. It does look like uncertainty is slowly trending up, albeit with kind of punches and jumps. I think one reason is politics, certainly in Europe and the US, has become more polarized and more aggressive and more combatorial in the last 10 years, maybe globalization. But yeah, our measures, I would say, have a weak upward trend. It's slightly hard to tell between bad luck and a trend, but certainly if you run a regression, it's significantly rising up. And you kind of see it visually with 08 and 2020 in particular. So you have these measures, Nick, and when you want to see whether and how they affect economies, what results do you get? So you can do it at the firm by firm level, or you can do it at individual consumers or at the national level. You generally get the same results, which is when uncertainty goes up, you see a big drop in business investment. So investment, you know, buying plant equipment, computers, et cetera, drops the most. That's maybe not surprising. It's a very expensive decision to reverse. You see a drop in hiring. So firms pause, they're cautious. They say, you know, do I really need to hire that extra person? Maybe I just wait until the conditions are clear. And then on the consumer side, you see a big drop in spending, particularly on consumer durables. In fact, Christina Roma has a famous paper showing in the Great Depression, going back, you know, about 100 years, there was a huge drop in durable expenditure. So people stopped buying. I mean, durables back then was, you know, cars, I guess, but household equipment. And they'd still buy food, they'd still buy clothing. So generally, investment is down, durable expenditure is down, hiring's down a bit, and that generally overall causes a recession. Do you find that these effects of uncertainty on economic outcomes differ in any systematic way across countries or across different kinds of businesses? Certainly across countries, we found, you know, this is kind of the double hit to developing countries. Not only is the level of uncertainty higher, they appear to react more strongly to it. And one reason you think is they're financially not as robust, they're economically not as robust. So if you're a country, a company in a developing country, you probably don't have nearly as much financial buffer, as much cash flow. So this affects you more. In terms of firms, the ones that appear to be impacted most are the ones with the longest horizon and doing the most irreversible activity, which is basically R&D. So you think of research and development. If you're doing a five-year R&D project, three years in, something goes wrong. You really can't sell you know, the, the half-finished research. So it's totally reversible and you're very sensitive to market conditions. So it's one of the reasons why stability tends to gr- drive growth because it promotes investment, it promotes R&D, and then, you know, on the individual side, it also invo- promotes investment in education. So yes, it appears long, long run, uh, long focused, you know, research, development, investment is the most sensitive. So do you have any practical advice for companies or for individuals, how they can insulate themselves from the effects of uncertainty? Yeah. So yes, um, you know, link back to your question earlier about rising uncertainty. We actually, because of that, put something out in the uh, Harvard Business Review in their blog piece. And we said, look, there are three steps you can take. Um, one is paying attention to politics. I hate to say it, but politics has become more important. You know, that famous quote about the business of business is business. That's true. But politics is, you know, think of Brexit in the UK or Trump in the US. Politics is really affecting business. So one is pay more attention to politics to have a better idea of what's coming down the pipe. The second is pay for flexibility. And by that, I mean, 
If you're buying property, you might want to think of signing shorter leases or lease rather than buy. It's more expensive per year, but it means you can get out of it. Lease, you know, contract staff rather than hire them permanently. Lease equipment rather than hire. Basically, there's often decisions you can say, you know, do I buy the season ticket or the individual ticket per game? One is more expensive per game and the other, you know, uh, but the other loses flexibility. I'd suggest with more uncertainty, pay for flexibility. And then the third is scenario planning. So it turns out, think about the pandemic or think about 2008. There was a big premium for firms that reacted quickly. And one of the best ways to be able to react quickly is to do scenario planning. So you have a, you know emergency drills, emergency tests. If you look back at the pandemic, typically the firms that had that, they never got exactly the pandemic scenario right. They got something that was a bit like it. And, you know, the companies say, look, we're going to go to our major you know, fire plan. It's not the same, but at least we have some rough idea of what to do. What about governments? What can governments do in the face of uncertainty or ambiguity to make their, um, their work better? I mean, this is, you know, governments can basically stand back and be stable. I mean, the main things that governments can do is try and re- reduce generating uncertainty. So I have a paper with Steve Davis and Scott Baker, whereby we've looked at measuring uncertainty and we find that governments generate about 30 to 40% of it. And you can imagine why. It's like, well, you know, will the government have a trade war with China? Yes or no. Will it introduce a minimum wage? Is it going to beat up in the unions? Is it going to allow, you know, this pipeline, et cetera? Is it going to ratify, you know, NAFTA? And that generates tremendous uncertainty. There's also at the local level. I mean, where I live, there's endless debate about whether or not you can have planning constraints and tax laws, et cetera. So I think at the aggregate level, some things that obviously they've done that have been great, which is like central bank independence, trying to have to try to have some more stable fiscal positions, but more so, more so also at the micro level, avoid what I call tinkering. So for governments, the best thing is basically stable policy, rules, guidance, you know, particularly avoid changes at the last minute. So Nick, your research has made us a little less uncertain about uncertainty. Thanks for joining me today and discussing this important work. Thanks very much. Great to be on. Wonderful to have you. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.